Russian loyalists in Moscow celebrated when, re when Republicans voted to block Ukraine's aid last week. The host of a Kremlin-run show literally said, and I quote, well done, Republicans. That's good for us. If you're being celebrated by Russian propagandists, it might be time to rethink what you're doing. Yeah. It might be. Not that they will. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling there's something right. No, I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast. As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso, Eugene's KEPW. Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950. KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast coast and around the globe every day on the Internet. It's on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow insists me from bradblog.com. Your mileage may vary. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, I got a lot to try to get to, but I do want to start here. Since you are least likely to hear much about this story, really almost anywhere else, I suspect, COP28, the 28th annual so-called, uh, see if I got this right, Desi Doyen, Conference of Parties to the United Nations Framework on Climate Change. Framework Convention on Climate Change. Oh, I was so close. One more C was, was in so there. close. <laughs> anyway, COP28, hosted this year by the uh, Petrostate of the United Arab Emirates, what could possibly go wrong in its capital of Dubai is, as uh, Desi reports later this hour in our latest Green News report, it is uh, now crunch time for uh, the COP28 conference. In fact, as is usually the case, it is now officially in overtime. Oh, is yes. that what we call it now? Yes, it happens every time, every uh, year. This, as the uh, nearly 200 nations who participate in the conference every year, must all agree on a final statement, as I believe they have every year up until now. Yes, they always finish with a statement about what they're what they've done and what they need to do next. It takes them too long. They always have to go into overtime like this, but yeah. they eventually come out with a, 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 a statement they can all get behind. But while there have been some historic accomplishments at this year's COP, the final statement that all of the nations can agree to is, well, now in jeopardy. 
As longtime climate champion, former Vice President Al Gore tweeted yesterday on what was the official the official final day of the conference. It's currently extended. Uh, he tweeted, uh, Cop tw- quote, COP28 is now on the verge of complete failure. The world desperately needs to phase out fossil fuels as quickly as possible, but this obsequious draft reads as if OPEC dictated it word for word. It's even worse than many had feared, he wrote. It is of the petrostates, by the petrostates, and for the petrostates. The former vice president said, calling it deeply offensive to all who have taken this process seriously. There are, he notes, well, he noted at the time, there, are, there were 24 hours left to show whose side the world is on, the side that wants to protect humanity's future by kickstarting the orderly phase-out of fossil fuels or the side of the petrostates and the leaders of the oil and gas companies that are fueling the historic climate catastrophe. He uh, continued, in order to prevent COP28 from being the most embarrassing and dismal failure in 28 years of international climate negotiations, the final text must include clear language on phasing out fossil fuels. Anything else is a massive step backwards from where the world needs to be to truly address the climate crisis and make sure the 1.5 degree centigrade goal does not die in Dubai. Now, setting aside whether the goal of keeping warming from surpassing the uh, one and a half degrees Celsius rise above pre-industrial levels, as aspired to, I guess, Mm -hmm. via the uh, uh, Paris Climate Agreement from 2015, since we never have enough time in our six-minute Green News report, Desi Doyne, can you offer some context for Al Gore's seemingly dire statement there? Because it does not sound good. Oh, it does not. He is not wrong. So what happened was that on Monday, uh, the leadership released a, a draft deal that triggered widespread outrage because it made no mention whatsoever of fossil fuel phase out or phase down, which mm. is, of course, necessary in order to protect the planet from climate catastrophe. Phase out would be preferred. Phase down, would be they might might be able to settle on. was what they were wrangling over, but it took it out entirely and instead gave countries a choice from a list of actions that they could maybe choose if they wanted to, but, you know, may or may not include fossil fuels. It's up to you. So that caused so much outrage that it actually did seem to trigger some very deep and uh, interesting negotiations um, at the COP. And so, you know, fossil fuels have never been mentioned Mm -hmm. in any COP draft uh, statement, which is kind of crazy when you consider that they are the primary cause of yes. climate change. But another interesting point, the U.S. The industry that shall not be spoken <laughs> in the uh, COP agreements. Exactly. Yes. But the good news here, I think, is that for one thing, the U.S. is not a villain. The U.S., Australia, and U.K. Well, that's rare. All have said that they will not sign any agreement that would not include some kind of clear, aggressive statement about what to do about fossil fuels, whether it's a phase Mm. down or anything, to just get that on paper. Aggressive? Did they use the word aggressive, that it's got to be aggressive? They said they won't sign any agreement that would be, quote, a death certificate for Pacific Island states, which will all, you know, of course, be inundated by sea level rise. So there is an update on this. Okay. 
Bloomberg News saw a version of a new draft on Tuesday that would call on nations to swiftly transition away from fossil fuels. So that's a watered-down okay. statement, but at least it includes fossil fuels, and it says you've got to transition away from it. And, of course, keep in mind, all of this is voluntary because that's the only way to get it passed among all of the countries and in order to prevent the U.S. from uh, the U.S. Republicans in Congress from stopping everything using whatever levers of power they possess. So having it be voluntary instead of legally binding means it doesn't have to be voted on by the U.S. Senate. So they don't even actually have to do, none of the countries actually have to do any of these things. All they have to do is agree on the wording to make it at least uh, sound nice, to make it at least sound like they care. Yeah, it's naming and shaming, which is actually been surprisingly effective um, as far as getting as far as we have um, as far as uh, getting any kind of the breakthroughs that have happened like you know the Paris Agreement in the first place Mm -hmm. so all of those aspects yes it's it's insane from a common sense normal person's perspective but from a diplomatic perspective the fact that they've gotten any kind of uh, leeway any kind of movement progress on getting fossil fuels into the document itself is pretty stunning. If they have, we if will see. Have, That's we'll uh, the latest draft. They haven't agreed to it yet. We'll have to keep our eyes on it uh, as we as we move forward. Just amazing. Who who would have thought that would have happened when you had a uh, petro state? And actually, I think the actual host, the dude who's hosting it, is like the CEO of an oil company. Yes, and, but you know, his yeah. thought behind all of this is like, hey, I'm. With the oil industry, um, he's also, by the way, the uh, CEO of the UAE's largest renewable energy uh-huh. uh, company as okay. well. So he All does right. both. Yeah. But he said, you know, the idea, I think, was that if you have somebody from the oil industry in charge and you do it in oil country in the Middle East, that he would be able to bring the oil industry on board. How's that working out? Not so great so far. Okay, then. Well, we will have uh, a a bit more on that. As I said, there are some good developments that also came out of COP. We'll have uh, some of those a little bit later on the uh, on the Green News report. Let me get to uh, at least what I think is some uh, definitely some brighter news today, Uh, perhaps if only for a moment. We've been covering sort of the dark, rather foreboding news in recent weeks as we head into our own election year here uh, about a bunch of nations around the world and in Europe, uh, particularly in recent months, where voters have elected far right authoritarian leaders into office as uncomfortable echoes of sort of uh, pre-World War II continue to rock the globe or even pre-2016, depending on how you might want to look at it. Last year, it was Italy's Georgia Maloney of literally a political party formed in tribute out of nostalgia for Mussolini. And last month, the very Trumpy, right-wing, libertarian, anti-immigrant populist Javier Malay won the election as Argentina's new president. Though uh, I think we have some not horrible news about Millet, who, unlike Trump, has now said he will not actually pull Argentina out of the Paris Agreement. That is what he said. So there's that. And then the uh, surprise uh, majority win for about a week or two ago for the far-right party of Geert Wilders in the Netherlands. Uh, That was late last month. But for what it's worth there, his party is so far right that they are having a very difficult time forging a governing coalition in parliament. 
which may also keep the uh, also very Trumpy Wilders from becoming prime minister of the previously liberal Netherlands. Well, uh, when noting some of those recent electoral wins for the far right, I had also cited the Brexit victory in the UK back in 2016 that I had worried about at the time might serve as a dark omen for an election victory back in 2016 for then pretend populist candidate Donald Trump that year in this country, which it eventually did. So I watched these these things very closely as we get close to our own election victories, what else is going on around the world and what that might tell us about our own upcoming election. But with all that in mind, with that long preamble, we have got some genuinely encouraging news last night out of Poland. Don't forget about Poland, a nation that has had a front row seat to Vladimir Putin's authoritarian rise and invasion of neighboring Ukraine. In a cathartic moment for many in Poland, according to the Washington Post, which some are describing as a political earthquake, the good kind, I guess, in a cathartic moment, centrist political veteran Donald Tusk, yes, Tusk, not Trump, Donald Tusk, got the nod on Monday to be the country's next prime minister, marking the Happy end of eight years of right-wing nationalist rule and a dramatic shift in the European political landscape. A dramatic shift, I should note, for the good, for a change, a shift toward democracy and away from right-wing authoritarianism. Quote, this is a wonderful day, said Tusk, addressing the Polish people on Monday night, not for me, but for all those who have deeply believed over these years that things will get even better, that we will chase away the darkness, that we will chase away evil. From tomorrow, he said, we will be able to right the wrongs that so that everyone, without exception, can feel at home, he added. Now, Tusk faces the daunting task of repairing relations with the European Union, depoliticizing Poland's Judiciary, restoring the independence of the media in Poland. State-run media there had been uh, turned into party-controlled propaganda outlets in recent years. And of bolstering the rights of women and minorities after both were under attack by the far-right-wing regime of President Andrzej Duda, which, among other things, uh, drew strict rules against abortion in Poland and the nation has been uh, reeling and rising up against it in huge protests ever since. Prominent among the obstacles is uh, Duda himself, President Duda. He has two more years in office. He remains loyal to the outgoing Law and Justice Party. Duda said, uh, Duda sought to uh, delay a political transition, as authoritarians do by first tapping the law and justice leader to serve another term as prime minister. It is unfortunately, well, fortunately, it came well short of a majority and their proposed cabinet lost a vote of confidence on Monday. That cleared the way for lawmakers to vote in favor of Tusk as the next prime minister, something akin to what we might see in the Netherlands as uh, Wilders' right-wing party is having a a similar problem of of, uh, pulling together a governing coalition. 
So uh, Tusk's government, however, was expected to be endorsed in a further parliamentary vote on Tuesday, allowing him to take his place among European leaders at gatherings later this week. And in fact, just before air, the good news is they did so. Tusk won a confidence vote in Parliament on Tuesday, though just to give you an idea of some of the headwinds that he will still be facing in Poland, the uh, the vote, the confidence vote for, for Tusk was actually delayed after a far-right lawmaker used a fire extinguisher to put out candles on a Hanukkah menorah in the Parliament. That's not good. Uh, that created a, disrupt- a disruption and scandal as the new pro-EU government was trying to begin its work. But on Monday night, congratulations were pouring in from across the co- uh, continent as Warsaw's Palace of Culture was illuminated in the colors of the Polish flag. Malgorzata Bonikowska, president of the Center for International Relations in Warsaw, said there is a sense of, quote, now we can just get back to normal in the sense of what the state is and that public institutions are respected. Well, that sounds nice. That said, as Washington Post reports, uh, walking back eight years, eight years of law and justice party rule will not be quick or easy. But, uh, you know, hey, whoever said democracy was going to be easy? Got to start somewhere. Tusk served as Poland's prime minister previously from uh, 2007 to 2014. He's also known throughout Europe as a former president of the European Council who helped hold the 27 nations of the EU together during their rocky period of, yes, Brexit. That record, according to the Post, will make his task somewhat easier as he seeks to get Poland back onto good terms with the EU. That, as the uh, coalition between the U.S. and the EU sort of struggles uh, struggles to hold, against Republican opposition in this country, in the U.S., against further support of Ukraine's fight to hold off Russia and their assault and its threat, frankly, to democracies across all of Europe. Poland is, after all, one of the countries that would be next on Putin's list if he's allowed to take all or parts of Ukraine through his imperialist war against democratic Ukraine. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, sort of pathetically, frankly, has been forced to come all the way to the U.S. on Tuesday for meetings with members of Congress and the White House to help make his case for continuing support. Uh, Apparently, uh, support from people who just have no memory. What Did something happen in Europe back in the last century that I should know about? that I should be concerned about that might serve as a model for what is going on right now? I don't remember anything. Anyway, Zelensky has been uh, sort of forced to do that, to make the case for continued support in the middle of a war that he is against, uh, you know, that he's running in his own country to save his own nation. Now, the word is uh, so far on Tuesday that congressional Republicans seem to be hardening their position against supporting uh, um, our democratic ally in Eastern Europe. Man, has that Republican Party changed? Uh, But uh, 
so uh, so we will see what comes out of that. You heard a little bit of, uh, uh, at the top of the uh, show there. Joe Biden just now held a press conference with Zelensky, wherein he noted that uh, in Russia they have been celebrating, celebrating Republican turning down aid for Ukraine. But before we allow things to get too dark on that front, uh, some more good news uh, today. In fact, good news regarding Congress, even Uh, this out of New York State late today. New York's highest court on Tuesday ordered the state to draw new congressional districts ahead of the 2024 elections, giving Democrats a potential advantage in what is expected to be a battleground for control of the U.S. House next year. The 4-3 decision from the New York Court of Appeals, which is actually the state's highest court, their Supreme Court is actually lower than the uh, Court of Appeals, oddly enough. Uh, That's currently, for example, where Donald Trump's $250 million fraud trial is currently unfolding in the Supreme Court, which is the lower court. But the uh, decision could have major ramifications as Democrats angle for more favorable district lines in the state next year. Republicans who won control of the U.S. House after flipping seats in New York sought to keep the 2022 maps in place. Well, they have now lost. The uh, state's bipartisan independent redistricting commission will now be uh, tasked with coming up with new districts in time for 2024, uh, which will then go before the Democratic-controlled state legislature for approval. The court ordered the commission to file a map no later than the end of February of next year to be in time for next year's elections. The court's decision notes, quote, in 2014, the voters of New York amended our Constitution to provide that legislative districts be drawn by an independent redistricting commission. The Constitution demands that process, not districts drawn by courts. Democrats sued to have last year's maps thrown out after their party lost a handful of seats in New York City suburbs, which arguably handed control of the U.S. House to Republicans last year, if barely. The case came after Democrats in the state bungled the entire redistricting process for the 2022 elections. The maps used last year were supposed to have been drawn by the bipartisan commission that was established by voters to stop partisan gerrymandering of districts. But the commission, which is made up of an equal number of Dems and Republicans, failed to reach a consensus. They eventually gave up. The state legislature then stepped in, drew its own map, which was set in a way to give Democrats a major edge by cramming Republican voters into a few super districts, diluting GOP voting power in the rest of the state. Yes, New York Democrats were trying to gerrymander the state in response to similarly outrageous gerrymanders that were carried out in Republican states which the courts allowed to stand, but nope, not in New York. A legal challenge stopped the Democrats' maps from moving forward last year, and the Court of Appeals ruled that the state did not follow proper procedure in adopting those maps. Instead, the court had an independent expert last year draw a new set of lines along the Along with a strong turnout from the GOP, that led to Republicans flipping seats in New York, in the suburbs, and winning control of the House, as I note, just barely uh, back in 2022. 
Democrats then filed their own lawsuit to stop last year's maps from being used next year in 2024. That case went all the way to the highest court, New York. They argued that the court-drawn map was never meant to be used in more than one single election and that the state's bipartisan redistricting commission should have another chance to draw the maps. And on Tuesday, New York's highest court agreed with them. So there's some good news uh, when it comes to redistricting. We may have some uh, darker news on that front around the country elsewhere this week. But for now, in New York, and that was a, uh, actually a bunch of seats that flipped because yeah, of that. It was a tangled mess, and I hope they'll finally get it sorted out so that it's fair to voters. And we've got also some good news about the economy today as well. Well, it actually, it sort of depends where you look, I guess. And and really, which mobile phone notifications you tend to receive uh, or, you know, or which news outlets that you follow on social media, I guess. I receive a bunch of mobile phone notifications from a bunch of different news outlets. So here's what I learned upon waking up this morning from NBC News. Inflation slowed further in November to 3% compared with last year, 3.1% compared with last year. Well, that sounds like good news. New York Times says U.S. consumer prices rose 3.1 percent in the year through November, holding relatively steady from the month, uh, the month before, which also an encouraging headline. AP said U.S. inflation ticked down against last month with cheaper gas helping further lighten the weight of consumer price increases. All very good to hear. Then I read the alert from Fox News. Inflation rises slightly in November from the month before. All right, so what's what's the real news? Is, is, is good or bad news? Well, as it turns out, it's a bit of uh, all of the above, but mostly good, unlike what Fox was trying to tell its followers, naturally, because that's what they do. Washington Post's coverage uh, seemed to be uh, fairly accurately balanced in that regard, with the headline, Inflation Drops to 3.1% as Fed kicks off their final meeting of 2023. They write, inflation came down in 2023 much faster than anyone expected, sealing expectations that the Federal Reserve will not raise interest rates this week and shrinking the chances that the economy is headed for a recession. A year after prices soared to four-decade decade highs, inflation for all sorts of goods and services has fallen considerably, the Post notes. Fresh data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics on Tuesday showed prices rose 3.1% in November over the year before and about 0.1% compared to October. That's still slightly higher than normal, but it is a vast improvement, they note, since the Consumer Price Index had peaked at 9.1% back in June of 2022, as we were still struggling to come out of the pandemic. A steady stream of encouraging news over the past few months all but guarantees that the Federal Reserve will now leave rates unchanged when officials gather for their final policy meeting of the year this week. The economy has stayed 
remarkably resilient uh, through the high rates that the Fed put in place over the past year, prompting forecasters to slash expectations for a recession. All of that, very good news, it seems to me. Asked Tuesday whether the U.S. had averted a downturn and achieved what is known as a soft landing rather than a recession, the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen gave a hopeful prediction. She said, quote, I believe that's the path we're on towards that soft landing. The big question now, questions are now whether the Fed has indeed reached the end of its aggressive rate hike campaign that was meant to slow the economy at the peak of inflation beginning last year, and whether the central bank will now finally cut rates in 2024. An answer could come this week during a news conference by, yes, Donald Trump's Federal Reserve Chair, Jerome Powell, on Wednesday afternoon after the Fed's two-day meeting, its final one of the year. And yes, in case you are unhappy about rising interest rates over the past year or so, it should be noted, even though it never is, that the chair of the Federal Reserve, which is responsible for setting interest rates, which have so greatly affected the economy under Joe Biden, uh, for both good and ill, actually, uh, the, 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 head, the chair of the Federal Reserve is a Donald Trump appointee. Just, just FYI, throwing that out there, because I never hear pretty much anyone mention that when complaining about high interest rates under Joe Biden. Actually, under Donald Trump's Federal Reserve chairman, Jerome Powell. Anyway... Post goes on to note there were no real surprises in the inflation report. Inflation in November was largely driven by housing costs, continuing a persistent trend. Rent was up uh, half a percent compared to October. That's not good. And while there are some signs that rents have finally cooled from their pandemic peaks, experts say it's going to take some time before it shows up in federal data. Gas and energy prices which had surged after Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year, well, they saw some of the largest drops. Gas fell 6% in November, following a 5% drop in October. Since Biden was blamed for the high gas prices, I I guess he'll get the credit now for bringing uh, the price of gas down 11%. (laughs) 11% in two months? Oh, sure. Any minute now. Don't hold your breath. Economists widely expected the steep run-up in interest rates over the past year would cause a recession. Instead, they note key pillars of the economy are, uh, according to the actual numbers, as reported by The Post on Tuesday, roaring. The key pillars are roaring. Crucially, consumer spending continues to propel the economy forward. It is robust. Employers are still hiring. And the unemployment rate is at near record lows of 3.7%. So will any of that make a difference as we move into a presidential election year? Don't know. But it certainly won't if Americans don't know about it, if the media doesn't inform the electorate about it as they should, and especially if some, some media, you know, like the nation's largest pretend cable news network, Fox, keeps misleading Americans about it. 
All right, we got a couple of uh, follow-ups today from some stories we covered on yesterday's broadcast. And yes, our latest Green News report with both news on COP28 and, speaking of things Americans aren't adequately informed about, <laughs> True. some good news from the Biden administration for all 50 states. All of that still ahead on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. That sounds like happy music. I like it. Yeah, this show is not that happy. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. All right, so yesterday uh, we covered the news as it was breaking, really, just uh, shortly before airtime, that special counsel Jack Smith had decided to try and leapfrog the federal appeals court in D.C. and take Donald Trump's appeal of the lower court's ruling that No, presidents are not absolutely immune for life to criminal charges for criminal actions that they undertook while serving as president. Jack Smith tried to take that case straight to the U.S. Supreme Court since, A, the matter is almost certainly going to end up there anyway, and B, the time that it would take to run the matter through the appeals court and then all the way up to the Supremes would likely end up pushing back the March 4 trial date scheduled for next year in the January 6th insurrection and attempted federal election theft uh, case against Donald Trump. It would push that back, that date, that trial date, beyond the date of next year's 2024 presidential election when the American people deserve to know whether Trump is guilty or, or, by the way, acquitted of criminal felony charges related to his attempt to steal the 2020 election. The last time he ran, Smith on Monday asked the Supreme Court to expedite his request that uh, that the high court take the case. And uh, it quickly, I, I think while we were on air, the court in, in what can be seen, I think, as an encouraging sign, the court quickly granted Smith's request for expedited consideration of whether it should take the case you know, whether it would would grant cert, a so-called petition of certiorari, which is agreement to hear the full case. So I wanted to mention this because uh, some thought that that decision from the court might mean that SCOTUS was actually taking up the case. No, they are not. Not yet, anyway. They are agreeing to consider taking up the case. A petition which they could have you know, either rejected out of hand or waited for a while to decide either way whether they would agree to consider Jack Smith's petition. But they decided quickly to consider doing so. Well, that still counts to say, yes, we will think about considering this rather than a straight out no. Right. And they did so very quickly, actually, and they gave a pretty short deadline. Trump uh, was given a deadline to respond 
to the petition by Jack Smith's prosecutor by December 20. That's next Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern. He is also uh, that's that's pretty quick. And read into that what you know what you will. In the meantime, Jack Smith is also going to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. He's also sought an expedited hearing there in the event that the Supremes do not choose to accept the petition before it is uh, heard by the appeals court. The uh, appeals court in this case set briefing deadlines for considering Smith's motion to expedite Trump's appeal to move that forward quickly. Trump's response in that motion is due by 10 a.m. Eastern Wednesday. And Smith's reply is due by 10 a.m. Eastern Thursday. So the appeals court seems to be moving quickly as well in the event that the Supremes decide to not take this case. And while yesterday we did not know which judges would randomly be selected from the D.C. Circuit for the three-judge panel to hear Trump's appeal, well, now we know the appeals court panel hearing Trump's appeal will be comprised of two Joe Biden appointed judges and one appointed by George Bush Sr. Of course, if Trump doesn't like that, well, I'm sure he will agree in his filings to the Supreme Court that they, that the Supreme Court, where, you know, he appointed three justices himself and a six to three Republican appointee advantage exists in Trump's favor, I'm sure that Donald Trump will want to move that right to the Supreme Court with those favorable judges as quickly as possible, right? Instead of going through the lower courts. Of course, he won't. His hope is not of winning on this immunity uh, challenge. His hope is to delay to delay the entire trial until after next year's election, when, if he wins, he'll be able to Make all of this go away. On the other hand, if he doesn't win, he won't be able to make it go away, and he will likely, most likely, be in for a world of hurt and potentially even decades of prison time. Speaking of a world of hurt, Rudy Giuliani, <laughs> a uh, former Georgia elections worker, told a jury on Tuesday that she feared for her life after Rudy Giuliani and other allies of Donald Trump falsely accused her of attempting to rig the 2020 election in Georgia. Shea Moss, a former voter registration officer in Fulton County, testified at the second day of Giuliani's defamation damages trial that her life, quote, flipped upside down in early December 2020 when Trump allies began falsely claiming that she and her mother, Ruby Freeman, engaged in fraud after the November election. They didn't. Quote, how can someone with so much power go public and talk about things that he obviously has no clue about, said the 39-year-old Moss of Giuliani on Tuesday. It's just obvious that it's lies, she said. It was obvious, at least to those willing to actually pay attention and see it, and it still is. It still is obvious. A federal judge has already determined that Giuliani defamed both Moss and Freeman. The only issue for the jury to decide is how much Giuliani will owe in damages. They are asking anywhere from $15.5 million to $43 million. 
Moss testified that the ordeal has affected, quote, every single aspect of her life, forcing her out of her job that she loved as an election worker and leaving her fearful of going out alone. She spoke of receiving a flood of racist messages that include uh, included threats to lynch her and her mother. They're both black. Quote, I literally felt that someone is going to come and attempt to hang me. And there's nothing that anyone will be able to do about it, Moss said on the stand. Now, on Monday, during opening remarks, Giuliani's own lawyer, as we noted on yesterday's show, agreed that, yes, Giuliani did, in fact, lie about the two women committing fraud in the Fulton County, Georgia, counting room on election night in 2020. Joseph Sibley, Giuliani's attorney, told jurors there's no question that Freeman and Moss were harmed and that they're, quote, good people. Before going on to argue that, nonetheless, the millions that the women are seeking in their civil lawsuit would, quote, be the end of Mr. Giuliani. But then, after the first day of the trial ended on Monday, guess what? Rudy went right back to lying about the two women in the middle of his defamation trial for having done exactly that, where it has already been determined that he uh, defamed them, that he lied about them, and he has already conceded as much in legal documents that he lied about them. But then this happened on the courthouse steps after the first day of the trial. Whatever happened to them, which is it's unfortunate if other people overreacted, but everything I said about them is true. Do you regret what you did to Ruby? Of course I don't regret it. I told the truth. They, they were engaged in changing votes. There's no proof of that. Oh, you're damn right there is. Stay tuned. What a jerk. Stay tuned. In fact, there is no proof of that. None. Has, has he told his own attorneys about this proof that he has? Or was he already drunk as a skunk by the time he was making comments on the courthouse steps? U.S. District Judge Beryl Howell, who's overseeing the case, scolded Giuliani earlier on Tuesday morning when Giuliani, unlike on the first day, actually managed to show up on time for the trial. The judge scolded him for repeating the accusations that he's already been found guilty of, 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 of committing defamation with even as he left the courthouse following the first day of the trial. Lawyers for the plaintiffs noted that the judge has already deemed that Giuliani's prior statements were false and he should not be allowed to challenge that determination during the trial. Howell said Giuliani's Monday remarks, quote, this is Judge Howell, said those remarks, quote, could support another defamation claim, unquote, and that they contradicted his own lawyer's statements in court. Now, Kyle Cheney of Politico has been uh, tweeting from the courtroom. He tweeted during this particular exchange. He noted, Judge Howell is incredulous. How could Giuliani's lawyer say Freeman and Moss are good people who didn't deserve what happened to them when Rudy is outside the courthouse saying that they are criminals? Quote, I'm not sure how it's reconcilable. Giuliani's lawyer admitted to the judge. Sibley, Rudy's lawyer, now says it's Giuliani's age that's the issue. 
Quote, this has taken a bit of toll on him. He's almost 80 years old. I think he was sitting here all day at trial at his age, said Sibley. Judge Howell says Rudy seems to be paying close attention and seems to be responsive to questions, so his capacity does not seem to be at issue. Can he follow instructions, Judge Howell asked. Quote, the answer, of course, is yes, Sibley said. And uh, the judge was apparently wondering if he would be able to follow court orders when testifying. Sibley seems to uh, largely agree with Howell's interpretation of the issue and is straining to defend Giuliani's conduct and commentary outside the courthouse, said Kyle Cheney. He repeatedly emphasizes that he can't control what Rudy does out of court. Sibley, Giuliani's lawyer, told the uh, judge that the case has, quote, taken a toll on uh, Giuliani, but that he would he would be able to manage his client's statements in court before repeating. I can't control, however, what he says outside of the courtroom. Well, good. You know what? I hope that he doesn't. And that it costs the disgusting liar, Rudy Giuliani, and the accused sexual abuser, Rudy Giuliani, by the way. That's one of Rudy's other cases. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah, gross, well, gross you, you'd want to forget about it yes. if you had read it as I did. But anyway, yeah. I, I hope it. Uh, I hope those comments on the courthouse step, I hope he enjoyed them. I hope they cost him another 20 or $30 million. And finally, uh, speaking of liars, U.S. Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. Uh, Last week, we noted that 10 of Wisconsin's fake Trump electors all settled a civil lawsuit, including the chair of the state Republican Party, agreeing to withdraw their fake certificate from the 2020 election to admit that Joe Biden won the election in the state and that they would never, ever serve as presidential electors again when Donald Trump was on the ballot. They also agreed to release a whole bunch of communications between them uh, regarding the plot, which I believe is also being criminally investigated still in the state. After uh, fake Trump electors now in three other states, in Georgia, Michigan and Nevada, are all facing criminal charges for doing the same thing that they did up in Wisconsin. But among those communications were documentation that Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson was actually advocating that uh, GOP lawmakers in the wildly gerrymandered state legislature back in 2020 actually vote to steal the election from voters, essentially, by appointing the electors of Donald Trump, even though he lost the state in 2020, instead of, you know, allowing Joe Biden's official electors. Ron Johnson was asked about all of this uh, this morning, I think this was, Mm -hmm. uh, by CNN's Caitlin Collins. They're acknowledging that they were playing a role in trying to improperly overturn the election. That's what they said. They, they, they got themselves agreement. out of a nuisance lawsuit. They, they agreed to get to settle a nuisance lawsuit that never should have been brought. So you think it's fine that someone... There's a travesty of justice. You think it's fine that someone who, who tried to overturn a legitimate election is still on a Democrat board electors have certifies. done that repeatedly. Democrats have done... Which Democrats one? have done the same thing. In, in Wisconsin, there's been fake slates of electors? No, it's, it's happened in different states. I, Which I, I ones, didn't come sir? prepared to give you the exact states, but it's happened. It's happened repeatedly. It has happened repeatedly. Just go check the books. Which books? 
I mean, there have been alternate slates of electors by Democrat uh, electors in our history. Again, I, you didn't. This wasn't what this interview is going to be about. I'll, I'll come and I'll provide you the information. But I'm okay, absolutely certain I look certain forward about to. That. I look forward to your office sending that information. We'll publish it if it's if we'll it's accurate. That. Yeah, <laughs> sure. I'm sure he will do that. It was a travesty of justice uh, that settling that civil suit, says Ron Johnson. So anyway, what I imagine that Ron Johnson thinks he's talking about in making this claim about, oh, Democrats have done it as well, created fake electors. What I think he thinks he's talking about, and I'm really I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt here that even that he even knows anything about this. But what I think he thinks he's talking about is the presidential election that occurred in Hawaii. Not in a bunch of states, but in Hawaii in 1960. That was the first election after Hawaii became a state. It was the election between Richard Nixon and John uh, John F. Kennedy when the results were so close in the state that the governor actually first certified Richard Nixon as the winner over John Kennedy by 141 votes. Now, both parties... In that case, because it was still being challenged, both parties decided to send their own slate of electors to Congress, but both parties did it openly, not in secret, as was done in Wisconsin and the six other states that Republicans tried to steal in 2020 when they met uh, these fake electors met in secret. Hawaii also had not finished a partial recount by the time both parties uh, decided to choose their electors. That, in contrast with uh, the day that Trump electors met, Georgia, for example, had already counted its ballots three different times. And at the end of each of those, Joe Biden was still the winner every single time. Recounts uh, had already been completed in Wisconsin by that time, as I recall, Ron Johnson. And in the Hawaii matter, neither party suggested wrongdoing by the other. For the record, Hawaii's governor eventually certified Kennedy, the Democrat, as the state's winner by 115 votes in that election. And that's whose slate of electors was ultimately certified in Congress by who? Well, by the man who would finish second in that election to Kennedy, then Vice President Richard Nixon. Other than that, totally the same thing was done by Democratic (laughs) electors in several states, I think Johnson said. I, I can't believe voters in Wisconsin were dumb enough to elect that guy three times as a U.S. senator, uh, most recently just last year after he tried to help Donald Trump steal a presidential election. And because he's faced no accountability for that, yeah, he's still at it. Green News Report is next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. You're listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener-supported, thanks to listeners like you who stop by bradblog.com Slash donate. All right, no time for chit chattery, Desi Doyen. Let's get to it. Our latest green news report. We cannot save a burning planet. Your fire holes of fossil fuels. Crunch time at COP28 UN climate treaty negotiations in Dubai. 
climate change, intensified ongoing deadly flooding in East Africa, plus... Long last, we're building the first high-speed rail project in our nation's history, and it started here. Biden announces biggest ever investment in U.S. passenger rail upgrades. All of those upgrades and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. We have the technologies to avoid the worst of climate chaos if we act now. Climate chaos? Chaos. He meant chaos. This is your Green News Report. To avoid the worst of climate chaos. Okay, Desi Doyne, so I understand there are climate cows at COP28. <laughs> no. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres was talking about chaos. Oh. Climate chaos. Oh, I see. Okay. Now, as yeah. we go to air, COP28, the UN Paris Climate Agreement Treaty Negotiations in Dubai are now in overtime. Uh-huh. Negotiators from more than 190 countries have reached major agreements, including scaling up a loss and damage fund from industrialized countries to developing nations bearing the brunt of climate impacts with resources and financing to transition to clean energy, plus a framework to cut emissions from agriculture, among other agreements. However, the International Energy Agency says that the new pledges announced at the climate summit are not enough on their own to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Hence the cows. But now the future of fossil fuels is the main sticking point, whether the agreement will include text for the very first time establishing a clear, aggressive global commitment to cut fossil fuels, the primary cause of dangerous man-made climate change. All countries must unanimously agree on every word, but Saudi Arabia is reportedly obstructing any mention of fossil fuels, much less the idea of phasing them out or phasing them down. Mm. Meanwhile, global carbon dioxide emissions from burning fossil fuels are set to increase by 1% in 2023, a record high, according to scientists with the Global Carbon Budget, who found rising fossil emissions in China and India have been offset by declining CO2 emissions in the U.S. and Europe. Well, that's good. And the hits, though, keep on coming. In East Africa, man-made climate change doubled the intensity of ongoing catastrophic rains and deadly floods, according to the international team of scientists at the World Weather Attribution Network. Hundreds of people have died, and at least 40,000 have been displaced from the relentless rains that began two and a half months ago. Mm. Sydney, Australia set a new all-time highest temperature in nearly a century of record-keeping, 110 degrees Fahrenheit, 15 degrees above normal, with the heat intensifying bushfires raging around the country. Here in the U.S., at the fourth Republican 2024 presidential primary debate late last Mm. week, climate change was once again universally ignored by the moderators and the Republican candidates who are not Donald Trump, who was not there. Except for one mention by conspiracy theorist Vivek Ramaswamy. I'll use this to just address a topic we didn't talk about tonight, but I think is one of the most important topics that needs to be discussed. That is this climate change agenda that is shackling this country like a set of handcuffs. I said it the first debate and I stand by it. 
The climate change agenda is a hoax. It is a substitute for a modern religion. Well, I guess on second thought, it'd be better if they didn't talk about it at all. Isn't that right? <laughs> but some good news. Good. President Biden was in Nevada on Friday to announce more than $8 billion in new federal funding for major passenger rail projects in every region of the country, upgrading rail infrastructure and adding new service to areas historically cut off from America's rail network. Biden also announced funding for the nation's first ever high-speed rail line between Los Angeles and Las Vegas. Cool. Biden joked about former President Trump and congressional Republicans' unfulfilled promises to upgrade the nation's infrastructure, pointing out that he is actually doing it. Four years of infrastructure week, but it failed. He failed. On my watch, instead of infrastructure week, America's having infrastructure decade. <laughs> decade. Trump just talks the talk. We walk the walk. Pretty long walk with someone would build some high-speed rail or something. The White House says the rail upgrades will give Americans more transportation options, clean up air pollution by taking millions of cars off the roads, and reduce greenhouse gas emissions while creating tens of thousands of good-paying jobs. With these investments, the U.S. is finally beginning the long process of catching up to the rest of the developed world on high-speed rail. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. There you go. Something good that happened. That's the love train we describe as the broadcast. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That free service is made possible by those of you kind enough to uh, stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. Thank you especially in this holiday season. Bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks, Mastodons, and sites still known as Twitter, you will find me at the Bradblog. Please find, follow, and share me there. And that's it. Until we see you next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1945. That was the day President Truman appointed a fact-finding panel to investigate the General Motors strike. As many as 320,000 UAW GM workers had been on strike for nearly three weeks. They had suffered deep wage cuts, deteriorating working conditions, and endless contract violations during the war. The UAW workers now demanded a 30% wage increase. But President Truman and GM acted 
acted as if it was still wartime. Truman ordered a 30-day cooling-off period to be followed by compulsory arbitration. Just two days earlier, 10,000 strikers picketed GM, encircling their downtown headquarters for over an hour. The CIO held an emergency conference, vowing to continue and spread the strike. CIO President Philip Murray took to the radio in defense of the strike. He noted that corporations had made millions in wartime profits, that wage cuts since VJ Day had been as high as 50%, and denounced Congress for burdensome new tax laws. Murray added that Truman's proposed Fact-Finding Act and other anti-labor laws served to, quote, weaken and ultimately to destroy labor union organizations. Bob Carter, chairman of the AC Spark Plug Strike Committee and chairman of the Greater Flint CIO Council, remarked, I am against arbitration and will oppose the setting up of fact-finding committees. Anyone acquainted with the labor history of this country knows that those committees are used by political stooges of the corporations to cheat workers out of their just demands. The strike ended in partial victory the following March, with strikers winning a 17.5% raise, just over half their original demand. But UAW members demonstrated their solidarity and their refusal to be cowed into going back to work on the government's terms. 